Hey, and welcome to the Resound Church podcast. Whether it's your first or your 40th time tuning in, we're so glad you're here. And we pray that you get something powerful from today's sermon. You may be seated. Welcome to Resound Church this morning. It's great to see you here with us. We look forward to meeting you if it's your first time here. And that's great. Thanks, mate. And um, catching up with you later on. We're in the middle of a series called At The Core. Now, at the core can mean so many different things, but ultimately for us, it's got a meaning that we have, if you like, overplaced on it. You know, when I hear the phrase at the core, I think of at the core of the earth. And the reality is at the core of the earth, nobody really knows what's there. There's a whole lot of theory, but there's not a lot of travellers that have been there. Is that right? We've penetrated only so far and that's probably going to be the extent of it. I remember when I was a little kid, you know, used to joke about digging holes in the ground. If you dug, I don't know why this is the case, but if you dug far enough, you would come out at at China. For some reason, every hole you dug, you always came out in China. And um, it doesn't even make sense because a straight line doesn't end up in China, but that was the saying. And so this series is called At The Core. And before we get into my subject today, I want to explain a couple of things to you because it's critical you understand what actually happens as you go through life. You are predisposed to a particular worldview. Whether you're a Christian or not, you have a particular view of the world. You have a view of God or some entity. You have a view of people. You have a view of the future. What, what actually happens is you become, um, if you like, you become, your operating system has a particular perspective. And that perspective determines how you live and how you work with the people around about you, how you treat people, how you conduct yourself when it comes, in the, uh, comes to things in the workplace, how you deal with finances, how you think about sickness and health, how you think about uh, ethics and righteousness, all these things are, if you like, a part of our operating system. They're part of our worldview, whether you're a Christian or not. And now when we have a worldview, we are predisposed to, if you like, uh, 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 the, the history that we've had in our family situation, our learning and a whole range of things. And somehow, some way, we come up with a worldview, a way of seeing the world. When we come to reading the Bible, the reason reading the Bible is so important is if we had developed what we call a biblical worldview, as we read the Bible, the intent is that our worldview will become aligned with the God of the Bible. Now, we know that God is bigger than our worldview, but our worldview is, is the controlling system in our life. And the goal is that the controlling system in our life becomes aligned with the God of the Bible and we actually move to a place where we submit to a greater authority because prior to that, we are the ones in authority. We are like God. That's what it means. We become like God because we determine the way we see the world. And so the reason the Bible, and Mason did a great job last week of speaking about the Bible, the reason the Bible is so important is because we bounce up against it. When we read, we read things that actually, if you like, irritate the position that we hold with the goal of it changing 
to become aligned with what God says. And so the way we treat people is affected by what the God of the Bible says and it should affect our worldview so that our philosophy or our practice or the way that we live is actually realigned with the way that God would expect us to live. One of the key things with your worldview is your view of God. Now your view of God will determine um, how you handle everything else around about you. If you believe in a God who is loving, then that should affect the way that you live. Now, let me say this. So you start with a worldview. It should be informed by the God of the Bible. You develop a philosophy based on revelation and then you have practice or the way we go about our life day to day. Paul struggled with this because he said, the things I wanna do, I don't do, and the things I don't wanna do, I do. What he understood was, I have a biblical worldview. I understand who God is and what He is like. I understand the way that I'm supposed to conduct myself and the way I'm supposed to live, but there are still times when I don't do the right thing. And it's a constant process for us all to be in a, in, a, in a period of change in our lives so that we live in a way that honours God and reflects the values that the God of the Bible espouses. And Mason said some great things last week. You know, the way you feel doesn't take precedence over what the Bible says. There are sometimes, and I think you use the word about prophecy, there are people that will prophesy. Prophecy ought to be submitted to what the Bible says, not the other way around. And yet some people live as if, as if prophecy is the ultimate authority. No, it's not. The Bible and what God is like in the Bible is the ultimate authority. Now we are in a process of changing our worldview. None of us is perfect, but if our worldview changes, because our worldview dictates the way we live, if our worldview changes, it's more likely the way we live in our day-to-day life is going to change and we'll end up becoming more like the God of the Bible who in human form is who? Jesus Christ. The ultimate outcome of our life, at the core of who we are, we ought to be like Jesus. And the reason the Bible is so important is because we continue to bump up against what the Bible says. I was just reading the other day in 1 Peter. And it's a, it's a passage about prayer. It's an interesting passage because we take passages about prayer and we, we highlight the ones we like and we discard the ones we don't like. Is that right? In other words, we take the ones that are positive and will get us the outcome we're after and we discard the other ones. It's interesting in 1 Peter, Peter speaks about husbands loving their wives and treating them as equals. He says that way you won't hinder your prayers. So Peter is introducing a concept here indicating that prayer is hindered by the way you treat your spouse. I know you wanna go back to what Jesus said about prayer and just hold on to that. But the reality is the way we conduct ourselves has the power to hinder our prayers. And that's an awful thing to think about, but that's a revelation of the God of the Bible and the way we live actually matters. And so today my subject is God and money or rather the church and money or tithes and offerings, call it what you like. 
And the reason this is so important is because the way we deal with money has got a whole lot to do with the way we view God. People don't like hearing that because they like to think that somehow they can handle their money and it's not an issue between them and God, it's just an issue between how they choose. No, 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 no. The way we see God affects how we deal with our money. It's, it comes back to our worldview. And you know, through the, throughout history, the churches, especially in recent history, it's been criticised in the areas of money. And we've all seen hucksters who are trying to raise money and are getting rich on the back of a gospel message in the hope that they can extract money from people. And that's distasteful. It's not, it's not the position we hold. It's not the God that we serve. The reality is in Australia, most churches struggle financially. Especially those in rural areas, they meet week to week and they're usually just making ends meet. They're not in a place of prosperity or freedom. They're usually in a place where they just get by. And it's so sad because a lot of the time, good faithful people are doing their very best to try and reach a community without the resource they need to do what they wanna do. There are the highlights about where churches have overspent or done something with the money that they ought not to have, but they're the rarity. They're not the bulk of what happens in the church. And if I can say it this way, it's not the church that does it, it's, it's men and women. Because it's easy and Nick spoke about the church just a couple of weeks ago. It's not the church because you're the church. It's men and women in positions of authority that misuse the Word of God to extract or manipulate and, and I think most of you who've been here for a long time know that that's not our position. As a matter of fact, that's not our view of God. And it's important you understand that, but our view of God is very, very important. There's another practice that personally I'm against, and I'm, if it sounds critical, I don't mean it to be. But for many years, churches would publish in their weekly newsletter the amount of the tithes that they received the week before and they would have the budget amount below that. So, or last week we got $2,000, but our budget was 2500 So you'd read, you get to church on Sunday morning, oh no, the church has gone back $500 over the past week. So what would happen is people think, oh no, the church needs money, we'll put money in. And then the next week they publish the newsletter and the church has received 3,200. The budget's only 2,500. I don't need to give this week. The church has got plenty of money. (laughs) And what would happen is people's, and and I'm not in any way (laughs) disrespecting the the, the sense of um, good that people were attempting to do, but the church was at fault because it was actually not practising a form of giving that's biblical, but rather it was doing it based on emotion. It's, it's, it's sort of like, how would it be if I turned up every Sunday and said, you know, last week, Ruth and I, we did well. We've got plenty of money. Oh, next, oh no, all the bills are coming in. What can we do? It's like people would say, well, you need to manage your money properly yourself. We're not gonna compensate for your bad management. And can I say this? The church needs to do the same thing. You know, through many years, we have managed our budget without appealing 
during the difficult times and without um, telling you to stop giving during the good times. Why? Because we equally, the church, have a responsibility to handle well what God gives to us. So I want to talk to you today a little bit about the way we think or our theology or our concept of God to help you understand how we, the church, manage your money, but also it's personal as well. And the first point I want to make is this, God owns everything. He owns absolutely everything. You'll be here for a while, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, maybe 100 years, and you'll go and you think your assets pass to somebody else, they usually trash them once you're gone. You spend all your life saving hard and then they take your money and they, oh, let's go on a holiday and blow the whole lot. (laughs) But the reality is this, before you were, God was, After you're all gone, God will still be. He owns everything. Let's read a few passages of Scripture, Psalm 24, 1. It says, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. When you realise that God owns everything, it puts you in a position of stewardship. In other words, you don't own everything. Now, some of you are saying that's true. I've got a mortgage. I don't own my house. But the reality is it's much bigger than that. God owns everything. A little further on in Psalm 50, let me read this one to you. And the words are really important. You'll, say, you'll think, oh, that's not relevant. The words are important because they say something about God. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. In other words, He's in control. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before Him and around Him a tempest rages. He summons the earth above and the earth that He may, and the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens proclaim His righteousness for He is a God of justice. Listen, my people, and I will speak and I will testify against you, Israel. I am your God. I am God, your God. I'll bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. And this is really important to note. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. He can take the blowflies. If I were hungry, listen to this. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls? Do I drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice, thank offerings to God and fulfil your vows to the Most High. Call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honour me. The point I wanna make this morning is this. You think your worldview gives you the impression that you somehow have control of something. The reality is this, God owns everything. We are not that powerful. He owns the whole world. And there isn't anything you have that He needs. And even in relationship with God, you think, oh, He needs me. He doesn't need you. He invites you to be in relationship with Him if you are willing. But if you choose not to, while He'd be disappointed, He doesn't need you. 
He is ultimate. He is supreme. He's omnipotent. He, he, he's, he was before the world began. He'll be after the world ceases. And we need to understand where we fit in that perspective. God is not begging you for anything. You, you hold on to your money at times thinking somehow you own it. He owns it all. He always has and He always will. The second point I wanna make is this. He provides for our needs. Genesis 22 and verse 14 says this. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide or Jehovah Jireh. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. We'll get to Philippians 4 in just a moment, but I want you to understand this. God provides our needs. We can go through this. So many passages of Scripture that help us to understand that. But it is connected to our relationship with Him. It is connected to our attitude. It is connected to our perspective. It is connected to our point of view. You can do it yourself if you want, or you can submit yourself and allow Him to do it and it makes the world a difference. Philippians 4, 10 to 19 says this, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. Paul writing to the church at Philippi who had been generous towards him from time to time. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And the point is here, Paul knew what it meant when he had a lot. He knew what it meant when he had a little and he'd learnt that his contentment was not connected to the, 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 uh, the things that he had. And that's an important lesson for us. I said before, you know, the Bible bounces up against our worldview and there's a teaching moment in that. In other words, we too, like Paul, need to be content whatever our situation. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. In other words, I'm relying on God, whatever the circumstance. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I've received full payment, more than enough. I am amply supplied. Now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable offering, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. So Paul is in a position where he is um, doing a combination of things. He's a tent maker. In other words, he's making money through making tents. He's preaching the gospel and he's also receiving uh, offerings from time to time from various churches who are supporting him in the work that he is doing. He, ta- he talks about his position and he says, listen, I've learned whether I've got a lot or I've got a little, I'm all right, I'm okay, I'm content. Um, I've learned how to handle that. But he says, you know, I do appreciate what you do with regard to your giving. I do re- receive your offerings and it, it, it just makes life a little bit easier is what he's saying. But then he ends with that phrase and he says, my God will meet your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying God will provide as you have provided for me, God will provide for you. 
We believe that God provides for us. As a church, we believe that God provides for us. And this message this morning is not an attempt to get everyone giving more money. That's not the goal because ultimately as an oversight, we hold a position which is, which is very, very clear. Number one, God owns everything. The second is this, God will provide for our needs corporately. And He has done it over many years and He will continue to do it, not because of anything that He has promised us other than that which is written in the Bible. We are not looking to extract money from people. We are looking to see people released in the area of giving for their own benefit, not for the benefit of the church. And I wanna say that carefully because too often it can be misconstrued. The third point I wanna make this morning is this. He expects us to steward well what we receive. If God is the owner of everything, then we should look after what He has given to us in a way that honours Him. Now, some people will take that and assume that somehow, some way, they've just got to get enough to get by. A simple question I can ask you, which may be offensive to you, is this. Does God trust you with money? And I'm not asking you to stand up and yell out your answer. <laughs> but it's a question you ought to consider. Now, it, 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 you know, um, when it comes to children and looking after children, the question is, can I trust Ruth to look after my kids? For a day, no problem. Leave them there for a week and we might be okay, but any longer, and, and, and you know, she might get to the point of expiry. She might say, no, I can't do this any longer. But what about you? How long can God trust you with, with finances? Are you a safe place? Are you a place where He can grant finance and understand that it will be given and used according to His purpose and plan? Are you a, or are you someone who's simply going to throw it all away? It's an important thing to consider because it's got to do with our worldview. It's got to do with the way we see God. It's got to do with the way we control what we have. First Peter 4, 9 to 11 says this. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. We're talking about stewardship. Expects us to stewardship, uh, steward well what we receive. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. There are anecdotes about older people from time to time. I remember my own nana. And um, when I was younger, I used to go to my nana and pa's place. You know, they lived in Lower Templestowe. And I don't know, my nana was a bit of a hoarder, but not a hoarder in the sense most people think. But she would go to the supermarket and she would buy up stuff when it was cheap. And in particular, she would buy buy up UHT milk. Right? And the UHA was like big M chocolate, big M strawberry, all that. And you would go into a spare room and there would be dozens and dozens and dozens of containers of this UHT milk because she liked that milk. I've inherited the same, the same sort of desire for not UHT milk, but for chocolate milk and strawberry milk and from time to time it shows. But what would happen is we'd go to my nana and pa's and my pa would say, oh, Kitty, her name was Kathleen, Kitty, give Wayne a strawberry milk. Her response would be this. I'm not giving him my strawberry milk. She's got dozens of containers of it. Just give him one. No, 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 that's my, that's my milk. I don't want to give him one. <laughs> this happens all in front of me. 
And eventually she would relent and she would give me a milk as if, and it would hurt her. You could tell it hurt her. She didn't want to give up her milk. Or it could be a biscuit. Now, the plain biscuits were okay, but there were cream biscuits there as well. And my, my pa, he would say, give Wayne, a choc- uh, give Wayne a chocolate or a cream biscuit. No, 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 he can have the plain ones. <laughs> now, the Bible says, offer hospitality or chocolate milk and biscuits to one another without grumbling. You're all laughing. What about when God challenges you to do something financially? No, I'm not giving him that. The church doesn't need that. They don't need that. Why, why would I do this? Oh, we've got people coming for dinner. No, 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 we're not giving them the good food. We'll just, we'll buy cheap, cheap steak. You know, the sort that you get more benefit from because you have to chew for longer. <laughs> Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. When we talk about God's grace, don't mix that up. God's gift is another way of interpreting that. Every one of you has been gifted by God to do something for others. And you are stewards of that responsibility and you ought to do it in a way that makes it a blessing. There's nothing worse than receiving something that the person doesn't want to give. You know, the the milk didn't taste the same when I'd just gone through the altercation with my nana. After a while, I got hardened to it, it was okay. But but you know, if you've got a gift and you're giving it reluctantly, do you think the people want to receive it? It, it, it? It's distasteful. And yet too often we find ourselves doing that very same thing. And again, the Bible is addressing that in us. If anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Tim be glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I'll skip the next passage from Luke, but... The final point is this, he blesses our faithfulness. Luke 6, 38 says this, Given it shall be given to you, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The journey of giving is a, sorry, the the, the act of giving is a journey. It's something that begins, it's it's an experience you go on and the intent is that somehow you become more like Jesus in the process. Give and it shall be given unto you. It's um, too often when we give, we, we look for the outcome and then I would question whether or not we're actually giving. If I give a present to somebody and then I look for the present that they give to me, what's the point? It's just an exchange. May as well write a contract. I'll give you a, a present for uh, worth $50. You give me a present worth $50. That's not a gift. That's just an exchange of funds. You see, giving is meant to be something that costs you. Otherwise, you're not actually giving. You know, some people, oh, no, no, I'm really generous. All my old clothes, I took them to the op shop. I just gave them all away. Well, what else would you do with them anyway? That's not giving. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But giving is supposed to cost you something. 
If, you're, if, you, if it's not costing you, then you're not actually giving it, right? It's, it, 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 you're either cleaning up or, you, or, or you're clearing out. Jesus here, He says, give and it shall be given unto you. If you don't actually give, you, you can't expect to receive. And too often people are giving, looking for what they're going to receive, which is not giving. But if you genuinely, genuinely give, then God will bless you. But you've got to be able to give without expecting anything in return. As an oversight, we, uh, we prepare a budget. We work within the parameters of our budget. Uh, most years we end up with a surplus. God has blessed our church and as a result of that blessing, we've been able to buy that property in Alice Springs for the church there. We don't own that property in Alice Springs. We gave that to that church, which focuses on reaching Indigenous people. It cost us $250,000 or something. We gave it away. It's not ours. We have no title. We, we, we gave it away. Why? Because God blessed us. We chose to give. We did a similar thing at the church in Shepparton. Why did we do that? Because God has blessed us and we chose to give. As a matter of fact, the property in Alice Springs, we made a decision when we we're not in a position to give. We believed that God spoke to us about doing it and we asked God to provide. And corporately, that's exactly what happened and the blessing was so great that while we'd planned to pay it off over five years, we did it over 18 months. Now I'm saying that as a church, that's the way we operate. Give and it shall be given unto you. What hurts me most is when I see people living personally in a way that's difficult for them simply because they're not applying what the Bible teaches about money. If there is one area that we appeal for money and it's with regard to missions and now missions giving goes to missions, it doesn't come to the local church. My question is, what does the Bible teach about giving? Well, I think it's probably summed up in Hebrews when um, Abraham had returned from a battle and he met a priest called Melchizedek. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter seven, it says this. This Melchizedek was the king of Salem, a priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteous, then also king of Salem means king of peace without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginnings of day or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a peace priest forever. And you can read all of the commentaries about who Melchizedek really is, but it seems like he's the son of man. And Abraham, well before the law was ever given, he gave a tenth of, his, uh, of, of what he received to Melchizedek to honour him and to worship him. When we talk about tithes and offerings, our tithes is a way of honouring and worshipping God. Now, some of you have a different perspective on tithing here, and that's fine. You're welcome to your own particular point of view on this. But let me read to you from Malachi, where it addresses the subject of idolatry. And, 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 you know, people read this passage of Scripture and take it out of context. And this is about idolatry. It's not about tithes and offerings. It says, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. 
So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you in tithes and offerings? You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that may be found in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough uh, to store it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops and vines you and will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Um, can I say this? This passage in Malachi, the book of Malachi addresses idolatry. And what God is addressing here is people being unfaithful to God. This is a, an example that Malachi uses to explain their unfaithfulness. In other words, what what was happening is the people were determining their own determining their own direction. And this is one way in which they were dishonouring God. People say, oh, tithing's in the, it's just part of the law. Well, actually, Abraham predates the law. Jesus Himself, in speaking about it, says this in Matthew 23, 23, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and your Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. What am I saying? I wanna sum it up by re-reminding you again of those first four points. God owns everything. He provides for our needs. He expects us to steward well what we receive and He blesses our faithfulness. Like I said before, this is not an attempt to extract more giving. It's, it's an attempt to teach you what we believe the Bible says. And your response is your own decision, but my response is summed up in probably the most famous passage of Scripture that there is, John 3.16. And I want you to read it out loud with me because it starts simply with the most profound word, And it's about God actually giving to us. And my question is, what are we giving to Him? For God, let's say it together. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I'm gonna ask Mason to come now and he's gonna share around communion because when it comes to giving, the one who has given us the most is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Thanks for listening through this message recorded live at Resound Church in Melbourne. You can find out more about who we are online, including our service times and live streams. Have a great week and we'll catch you next time.